Hello and welcome to The Sacred. This is a podcast about our divisive public conversations, how we can overcome our own tribalisms, and what does it mean to build real relationships across difference. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield, and every episode I talk to someone involved in some way in public debates, from academics to journalists, from comics to novelists. I ask them what they hold sacred, what has formed them, and what they've learned about connecting with people who belong, behave, and believe differently from themselves. Before we kick off, I wanted to ask a favour. If you're enjoying the podcast, would you rate it or even review it in iTunes or wherever you listen? It really helps keep it visible so other people can discover it. And thank you for those of you who are already sharing the podcast and telling your friends. Today, you're going to hear a conversation with Dr. Seth Andiska. Seth is an American historian living in London, and he's the Mohammed S. Farsi Polonsky Lecturer in Jewish-Muslim Relations at UCL, so he's thought a little bit about dealing with difference. We spoke about his Orthodox Jewish upbringing, the role of historical records in understanding ourselves, why he is an academic willing to be open about his personal story, and his new book, Preventing Palestine, A Political History from Camp David to Oslo. I hope you enjoy listening. Seth, it's so great to talk to you today. I'm going to kick off with the first question that I ask everyone, which I will describe again, because I know lots of people are listening through the podcast backwards. So they might come to your episode first and think, what on earth is a sacred value? What does that even mean? And interestingly, I came across this concept years ago. Matthew Taylor, head of the RSA, introduced me to an anthropologist called Scott Atran, who wrote a book called Talking to the Enemy, which was about bridging the divides really of extremists and uh, around terrorism. And he explained that sacred values were the thing that we would defend, not necessarily irrationally, but separate from our rational, self-optimizing choices that we would normally be making in the world. And the example he gives is actually about Israel and Palestine and the land as sacred or a sacred value, which is why no matter how much money you might offer either side to give up on their goals, it might even entrench them in a desire not to give up, in fact, to keep fighting, whereas something more symbolic or emotional that acknowledges the legitimacy of the sacred value might have more traction in helping to build bridges. People have all kinds of different sacred values. We're maybe only semi-conscious of them, and it's a really difficult question. But what's your best guess about what are yours? Well, it may not surprise you that land is not my sacred value. In fact, I have great admiration for rabbinical authorities who have talked about the idea of human life being more important and more valuable than land. And I think that's an interesting opening to think about about Atran's point. But for me, in thinking about the question, I would say it's a degree of skepticism, uh, skepticism that somewhat harkens back to the philosophical debates about skepticism. But for me personally, it's about religious skepticism and historical skepticism. And in in that, I mean a degree of questioning what are the assumed truths and what are the received wisdoms, both in terms of identity formation and the ways in which we're taught uh, or socialized to think about ourselves in relationship to community and religion, but then more specifically with regards to historical knowledge, questioning certain tropes that we have about narratives that we've received or read. Uh, And this doesn't only have to be about Israel-Palestine, but I think the greatest historiographical works or the works that have shaped me have really pushed back against those received wisdoms. And I'd say that skepticism requires a certain degree of questioning or being uncomfortable with the assumptions one makes or have been made about the kinds of 
uh, beliefs or ideas uh, one has grown up with, but also the kinds of ways we understand the past. That's really interesting. You're the first person who said skepticism in that way. Most people have framed it in the positive. So about truth seeking or about a commitment to rigor. What does it feel like to live with skepticism as your sacred value? Well, I think perhaps it's a product of my own experience, but growing up certain communal religious context and questioning those contexts because they assume certain things about me, whether it would be about religious practice, about identity, about belief, and having to push back against that or insist on a certain kind of place within this broader communal fold without necessarily um, agreeing to certain belief systems or ways of being in the world actually forced me to feel that I was pushing back. And in that way, I would say it's more of a responsive skepticism. Can you think of times in your life where you've, you've really felt the, the force of that, where that, something's pressed on that sacred value for you and you've had to respond? Well, I would say I, I, could, I could point specifically, having grown up in a, a modern Orthodox religious context uh, in, in the Jewish um, faith, there was a whole way of being in the world that required a certain belief system and, and adherence to certain laws and strictures. And among those laws and strictures were laws or strictures that didn't fit with my own personal identity and way of being. Uh, a great example of this would be homosexuality. Um, how does one come to terms with uh, a religious text or commandments of uh, an orthodox communal way of life that are in, con- in conflict with homosexuality, for example? And I think you'd find many religious Jews and Muslims and Christians who have struggled with similar kinds of tension in their lives. And coming up against those textual or religious definitions was always very troubling for me. I always ask my guests about the formative ideas in their childhood to try and get a sense of who they are and where they've come from, whether those religious, political or philosophical. You've obviously alluded to your Orthodox Jewish childhood. So tell me a bit more about that. What were your days like? What were the stories that shaped you? Well, everything in an Orthodox context is very regulated around certain practices, beliefs, and traditions. And there's a certain rhythm to the day that's encompassed by that faith tradition and by that communal context. So prayer, for example, you would be praying three times a day in the morning, the afternoon and the evening. Uh, When you get to the age of bar mitzvah or 13, you start putting phylacteries on and you you would be... Tell me what a phylactery is. Well, they're uh, pieces of leather that are attached to a small box, which contains inside of it a verse of scripture about holding uh, certain religious ideas close to your heart and to your head. And so it's part of a a set of practices of prayer. And that was always very central growing up. Um, and I've realized I do know that word. I've just never heard it said out loud. And you have the boxes. Is, is it the same word for the boxes with the prayer that you put on the doors, doorways of houses? No, that would be a mezuzah. So okay. that would be a, a, a small a piece of verse as well wrapped up in, in parchment that would be put on the doorway of, of houses and, and flats. Um, but in terms of the, the context that I, I was uh, raised in, there was also a very rich and socially active community of um, summer camps and day schools and obviously uh, synagogue life and home life and uh, all the things that come with a very close-knit community. And uh, there was also a focus on learning on religious texts and on the pursuit of uh, of knowledge in, in the classroom as it related to religious uh, values. And so growing up, there was always a split in my 
daily education between secular studies and religious studies. And then in high school, I would study Talmud for three or four hours a day and only get to the secular studies in the afternoon. So there was always this balance between your religious and your Jewish values and identity and this sort of secular knowledge that you would pursue. And I would say that for an American Orthodox Jewish community, there was always this interesting tension between your American identity and your Jewish identity. How did we think about ourselves as hyphenated in that context? Um, Because it is, uh, uh, at least in the place that I grew up in the Northeast, a very rich and very uh, rich as in culturally rich and uh, historically quite significant Jewish community that's quite large and confident and secure. And that leads to a certain sense of integration in wider society at the same time that one feels somewhat apart. Uh, So you would only eat at a kosher restaurant, for example, or you would only um, participate in certain activities with other Orthodox Jewish kids. We've had people on the podcast and I have many friends who grew up in religious communities, particularly perhaps more conservative religious communities like the one you're speaking of, for whom it was very real and personal, for whom they felt. They did feel integrated and in Christian terms had a relationship with God, but there was a point where they no longer had that. And that's the reason they moved out of the community. And then there are others for whom they felt their childhood, they never really understood what they were doing. It wasn't personally integrated for them. And therefore, when they came to move away from that community, there was less of a sense of loss. Where would you put yourself between those two points? I would say that I was very integrated and very much rooted in this community and in this context. And part of it is because of my family and being very close to my family, having a rather large family, five children. And I did all the things that were asked of me and that were expected of me in that context. And I always sought to meet the expectations of that religious community. And it really was going off to yeshiva for a year or studying religious texts in the West Bank in Israel. Can you explain what that is for those who are not familiar with the word? Yeah, so a yeshiva is sort of a an institution where mostly men, in this case all men, would spend uh, many hours a day studying religious texts. So Talmud, uh, the Bible, uh, Jewish thought, philosophy. And the idea of the yeshiva is bringing together um, people in pairs, in a chavruta, uh, between uh, two people and learning from each other and with each other particular texts. Uh, and in the American uh, context where I came from, there was often the, this tradition or this, I would say, sort of pattern of m- most Orthodox uh, Jewish families considering sending their children to a yeshiva in Israel after high school before they started university on a gap year. And so I spent uh, a very formative year in a yeshiva, which happened to be in the West Bank. And that is in many ways what led to lots of questioning about both the community that I had grown up in, but also the broader context where I found myself. What was it that caused you to question those ideas in that community? I think a lot of the curiosity about the reasons for why we were doing things was at the core of this level of doubt and skepticism. I remember years later, I had a very dear friend who came to my house in in the U.S. for Shabbat, And he was from a Muslim background, American Muslim background, also quite religious. And the entire weekend, he was very interested in the kinds of conversations that we were having at the dinner table. And um, he said to me afterwards that he found it very strange that God didn't ever come up, that it seemed that there was an entire apparatus of engagement around this context that was about something else. 
And in some sense, he was right. It was very much a social, cultural uh, community of practice and community of, um, uh, of engaging around um, a, a whole set of values. And the question of faith and God were not always present uh, in, my, in my life. I also think that there were certain ideas and realities within this community that struck me as incongruous with certain things that I believed. And I always had a bit of a frustration that they were not really addressed in school and in, uh, in, 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 in the, the synagogue space. And that community, which you grew up in, which had uh, sent you out to the yeshiva, would you describe it as Zionist? People, I think, often assume that all Jewish communities are Zionist, but I don't think that's in fact the case. Oh, yes. This, this community in particular was very Zionist, very connected to Israel. Um, since I was a, a little kid, there was always the presence of Israel in our lives, the sense of uh, con- co- connection between diaspora Jewry and the state of Israel. Um, I remember spending uh, lots of time studying it. I went there on trips. I spent uh, summer traveling around Israel. And that Zionism is in many ways particular to this Orthodox Jewish community, but one can see other elements of that sort of Zionism in other denominations of American Judaism, although there are, of course, Orthodox uh, denominations that are anti-Zionist or non-Zionist, in particular ultra-Orthodox. Uh, and, and, and that distinction is, is important because it's not a uniform uh, belief. But this community was particularly Zionist, the synagogue that I went to, uh, had a very uh, right-wing uh, rabbi who organized, uh, I remember, a, a fair for buying real estate in isolated West Bank hilltops. And, and that reality was quite jarring uh, to see. But that was certainly part and parcel of the community's political views. This experience that you had beginning to question that heritage, uh, studying in the yeshiva in Israel, uh, you in your recent book, Preventing Palestine, draw, draw quite a straight line from that experience to wanting to write about one of the most fraught, uh, perhaps battlegrounds in our public debates, which is the Israel-Palestine conflict. It probably didn't happen in such a simple way. So draw me the, tell me the story, 18-year-old Seth, to um, historian of the Israel-Palestine conflict. Well, as I said, growing up, we had a particular view of Israel and of the conflict that was very much framed by our attachments and a certain adherence to Zionist uh, approaches. I should say, by the way, that this term Zionism should be problematized. As a historian, I say that. And also just thinking about it in the wider public space, what it means. It has so many different definitions. One can think about it, political terms, cultural terms. Uh, and, I, and I would always encourage people to sort of question and problematize the meaning and the history of Zionism. But when I got to the West Bank where I was studying in yeshiva, it was the height of the Second Intifada. And you may know that there was a great deal of violence that was taking place. This was in 2001, 2002, a huge number of suicide bombings, a huge number of uh, incursions into West Bank cities by the Israeli army. Um, and then there was also shooting on roads. There was isolated attacks in parts of the West Bank and, and elsewhere, and a great deal of loss of life. Um, and this was a traumatic experience. And anybody who was living there at the time can identify with that trauma, whether they were Jewish or Arab or American or British. And this experience of being there in the Second Intifada started pushing me to question some of the assumed and received wisdoms about this conflict. 
because there's a projection of a place that one has at a distance. And when you are actually living there on a day-to-day basis and you're seeing things, in particular in the West Bank, you start asking, or one very well may start asking questions about that dissonance. And it took time. And, 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 and over time, I started um, curious, I started questioning what were some of the assumptions people had about uh, this conflict and also realizing how little I knew about some of the history and the political background to it. And in a way, I think when I started university as an undergraduate, studying the Middle East and studying Arabic and continuing with Hebrew and doing uh, more investigation into the history and politics of the region was almost a coping mechanism for some of the trauma of that experience of that year. And I've met friends and colleagues since then who were also in Israel and Palestine at the same time. And they've actually reflected on the similar experience that they had of this shock at what was going on. Did you find people that you could process that with as you were beginning to question the community that was so central to your identity? I think one of the centerpieces of the Jewish community they grew up in was a degree of curiosity and questioning. And that was certainly something that was also fostered in my home. And there was always a space to ask and to push back and to raise questions. And for that, I credit my parents and my immediate family for fostering that kind of environment. And there were always teachers and professors who were receptive to that and friends who were receptive, but there's also limitations. One cannot break with certain expectations of political uh, allegiance. And that's why the process for me of questioning took a long period of time and happened in the libraries and happened in reading and happened in uh, um, looking through a, a vast number of uh, scholarly and, and historical sources about this conflict and starting to think about what kinds of questions were interesting to me in my own research. Uh, I think we'll come back to that, but uh, I want to know um, about the book, which uh, is launching in, on October the 5th, I October think. October the 5th. I am very uh, lucky to have an advanced copy. Uh, it is a preliminary history of the 1970s and 80s tracing uh, what occurred in the negotiations between these nations and discussions of Palestinian sovereignty and how this very, very fraught situation might be resolved. What led you to be looking at those sources and what did you find? Well, one of the central conundrums as, I, as the project took shape was how and why does Palestinian statelessness persist? because we have this situation right now that we're confronting of a population living in the West Bank and Gaza without certain rights and without access and equality. Um, And how and why that situation developed is obviously related to much broader um, uh, sort of themes in Middle East history and in Israeli-Palestinian conflict itself. But I became interested in how and why with the emergence of Palestinian claims to self-determination, in particular in the 1970s, after the age of decolonization, when globally there is a sympathy and an awareness of Palestinian claims, why is it that at that very moment it seems that the possibility of the attainment of sovereignty is removed from the table or removed from the equation? And it's a complicated story that in many ways has a transnational dimension. It's not just a U.S. or Middle East story. It's also a great deal that happens here in Europe and in the UK. And what I found going back to the 1970s is the degree to which the peace between Egypt and Israel, um, between Anwar al-Sadat, the president of Egypt, and Menachem Begin, the prime minister of Israel, served in a way to perpetuate this uh, lack of a 
statist outcome for the Palestinians. And the sources that I drew upon started to be uh, available in the, in the Israeli state archives uh, in the early 2010s because they have a 30-year rule of declassification. So you can actually go in and look at many of the primary documents of the minutes of meetings between uh, the parties. So there was further research that took me to Beirut and in Lebanon and the Institute for Palestine Studies and then here in London at the National Archives, but also interviews with surviving officials and people who were uh, veterans of some of the events that I look at. So it, it took a shape across sort of off several different locations. It is a book called Preventing Palestine, which gives some clue to the narrative. And it's complex and subtle, but I think it's fair to say it's pretty strongly critical of Israel's actions in the 1970s and 80s and indeed now. As someone coming from a Jewish background, as an academic speaking into an already very fraught debate, how has that been received and what's been the personal journey of that for you? Well, first I would say that the book is not monocausal in the sense that it's not just a story about Israeli failures. It's also about Egyptian, Palestinian, and American agency. But broadly speaking, I think because it's a work of critical history, there's more of a receptivity to some of the things that it has to say because they're rooted in historical sources. And part of the joy of being a historian is also being able to uncover those sorts of documents and materials that in many ways uh, move past the polemical and move past the ideological because they show you in real time, in the words of the participants in these events, how and why things unfold. And I think that's part of the power of historical production or what it is to be a historian. Um, in terms of reactions, it's early to say, but my sense from people who have read it from across the political spectrum has been great interest and great appreciation for parts of uh, the story that weren't known. Uh, and in general, I actually think that this topic, although it is so fraught and it is so politicized in the public sphere, can do with more historical knowledge and with a, a different way of writing and thinking about it because everybody is so invested in the identity politics around it or in the polemics and less so in the actual anatomy and genealogy of how these events transpire. So you've only had initial uh, reactions to it yet because it's not officially out, but there have been some reviews, there have been some podcasts. It's your first book. What is it like having your work out in the world with people reflecting on it and fighting over it? How has it felt? Well, certainly a project that takes so long and gestation, you don't really expect or understand or imagine how people react to it. You hope that they will be interested in it. The odd thing for me was actually seeing part of the personal present in some of this discussion. It's a bit exposing and surprising. Uh, and certainly as academics, you're often taught to lay back on that. Um, but I also think it's important that one owns and explains where one is coming from. I found that the books that made the greatest impact on me when I was in school and becoming uh, a historian were books where you could sense what the personal investment was by the author. And it, it it's a way of reading that also helps you understand the perspective that the scholar is coming from. One of the things I always ask my students to do is to do a bit of research around who the author is, where they're coming from, how they come to a topic, because I think that we should better understand the kinds of histories that are being written also as a byproduct of where the scholars are coming from in this broader context. And do you have naturally yourself quite a thick skin? Are you on social media? Are you someone who enjoys the back and forth of debate or does it feel more difficult than that for you? 
I would say I feel a desire to step back from the day-to-day fray and look at this broader historical sweep of time. And part of that is a product of having to do the research for this book, which removes you from the everyday to and fro. And there was a process of almost silencing myself or not engaging in some of these day-to-day debates because I wanted to say something more lasting and more uh, uh, significant uh, in terms of understanding historical processes or how we got here. Uh, And that takes a certain degree of patience, but also sublimation. Um, And uh, I'm very skeptical of this constant stream of conversation and debate that happens on social media or online where everybody feels the need to say something. And actually, sometimes it's better not to say anything. Have you got, like me, a imaginary file of all the tweets you've deleted? <sighs> well, I, I only started using it recently. And I actually tend to use it to follow people and as an aggregator of interesting conversations rather than needing to say something myself. Um, and in this particular field, the, the punditry is astonishing, right? Everybody has something to say about Israel-Palestine. And what I would hope is we can have less of everyday constant back and forth and a bit more of a reflective conversation. I've had two people on the podcast who said something similar. Andy Crouch, who's an um, American evangelical, very, very thoughtful talks about just waiting. Just wait 24 hours and if it's worth saying, it'll still be worth saying in 24 hours and most things aren't. And Krista Tippett, who similarly talks about just trying to have a long view. And I'm very convinced by both of them and what you've said, except for the fact that people are so influenced by the noisy people who have, who have an instant take. Isn't there some argument at putting some more enlightening or more human or more humble voices in there immediately? But is that even possible? Well, are they influenced? Are, are people influenced by the everyday pundits? I think the everyday pundits make a lot of noise. I think they take up a lot of space. But I think that scholarship and people who do the long form and people who think reflectively about the work that they do also have influence. It's just a different kind and it's not immediately apparent. So we're distracted by the everyday, but there is an argument to be made for, as Krista would have said, the long view as well. I'd love to hear a bit more about that, the role of history for how we engage the other, and particularly thinking about these public debates and our tribalisms and engaging them. I did a a joint honours history degree and I vividly remember in the first module of uh, my history degree, this sense of shock that in fact, history wasn't just about cold, hard facts, as you were taught really in history A-level. This was what happened in the past. You just need to learn it and regurgitate it. But actually there was a sense of competing narratives, the role of power, the role of who gets to hold the pen, subjectivity and objectivity. What have you learned about where history can help us understand those not like ourselves? And are there examples of where it does it badly? Well, first, I think about history as a conversation. I'm writing a narrative. I'm aware that there's many other narratives that are out there, and I'd like to think that I'm contributing to that conversation. I do not have the last word on these events. And in particular, when you think about Israeli and Palestinian history and the role of historians in this conflict, there has been a very long and fascinating conversation that's been going back decades between historians uh, and scholars and historians in particular, uh, we have a, a term for them in, in this context called the New Historians, a series of Israeli historians and sociologists who came out in the 1980s with work that was very critical and revelatory about the 1948 war, the creation of the State of Israel, and also what the Palestinians call the Nakba, or catastrophe. 
And these historians who include Benny Morris uh, at Ben-Gurion University and Avi Schleim at Oxford, um, all of them were looking into archives and investigating very controversial topics with this empirical approach. Now, at the same time, critics came afterwards and said, well, you know, as much as they claim all this is new, there were Palestinian historians who had been saying some of the things that Morris discovered about massacres, for example, in 1948. And one of the reasons uh, that Morris was seen as different or as new was because he had documentary evidence. And this is a tension at the heart of the historiographical battles in this field. What is the role of oral history? And for Palestinians who remain stateless and don't have the apparatus of a state archive, interviews and recollections and memories are crucial in the way we tell uh, history. So there has uh, been a long tradition of oral history in Palestinian scholarship that had often not been taken as seriously uh, until these new historians came uh, along. And I think that's a, a good indication of uh, how methodology and the evolution of methodology is also related to these structures of power. Um, what happens when you don't have an archive? What happens in the case of the 1982 war in Lebanon, which I write about in the book, the archive is captured or the archive is destroyed. How then can you write about this past? And who uh, who does get to write or narrate this history? Um, and what one sees happening in the broader field uh, of Israel and Palestine is a move uh, for bringing together sources between these places. So writing across these national boundaries integrating Arabic and Hebrew sources, looking not only at written uh, archival documents, but also at oral histories. And so you see this field as a site of innovation as well. Uh, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, we met a few months ago, had a fascinating conversation, was that you were unusually public about the role of the personal in your work. And one of the more challenging things on this podcast is when we have an academic on and their training means they actually find it very difficult to self-reflect. And I'm trying to create you know, a secure space where they can talk about themselves without a fear that someone's going to say, gotcha, you know, well, therefore I'm, I can write off your work because you believe this or you come from here, which I, I believe has been more of the culture of um, the academy than it should have been. But what me made you feel able right in the front of the book to talk about your personal story and your personal stake in this when it is quite unusual? Well, part of the credit goes to my editor uh, at, at the press, at Prince University Press, because he pushed and encouraged me to think and reflect on how and why I came to this particular topic. I think it's part of a broader debate about the historical profession. What is the role of the personal in the writing of historical narratives? How do we think about history? Is this social science or is this part of the humanities? And there has been a, a very rich uh, a conversation there's been obviously a postmodernist turn. Um, there's been the work of uh, several important scholars who have questioned the, the limits of empiricism in the historical profession. And it's not, in my view, to say that empiricism uh, is, you know, has no place. I, I'm very much an empiricist, and the work that I'm doing is based on archival research. But I'm also aware and acknowledge that the kinds of questions I ask and the research I'm doing is emerging from the personal as well. A and why did I go into the archives and ask certain questions? Why did I request certain files? It strikes me that if historians are a bit more transparent about how and why they come to their projects, it can open things up a bit more for those who come after us. It's really encouraging for us here at Theos because one of the things that we talk about a lot is that no one is neutral, particularly in the space of religion and belief and you know, deep existential questions of identity. No one is neutral. We are formed by our stories. You know, we're formed by our communities, knowledges, at least partly tribal, right? Um, 
Uh, and that's, that's not an excuse to write people off. And what the, I think there's sort of one level of learning of that where we go, aha, well, you would say that and you would say that. And we get a lot of people saying to us, well, you would say that you're Christians. You would say that you're religious. We're trying to create spaces where we are authentic and transparent and open about our commitments and our allegiances, but also, you know, open and rigorous and willing to have our minds changed, which is where I think the best spaces are for encountering the other. How have you found encountering perhaps people who come from a more, and it's obviously the word is complex, but a Zionist background in the sense of being more willing to say, actually, the, the Israeli project and its current outworkings is a right and good thing. How have they reacted? Have you found people willing to listen? How have those, I imagine, sometimes quite painful conversations gone? Well, first, just to go back for a moment, because I would recommend you might be interested in, your listeners might be interested in uh, the work by Peter Novick, who's a great American historian who used to teach at the University of Chicago. And his book, That Noble Dream, is about objectivity in the historical profession and questioning what is the role of this pursuit of objectivity and how is the historian themselves subject to some of these uh, sort of personal as well as structural forces. But in terms of the encounter I've had with people uh, from my own community or how they've thought about or questioned some of the things that I've written, um, I think in general it's been positive uh, from those who, who I've talked to, but I also am aware of critical reactions and I'm sure those will increase because people are uncomfortable when you question the received wisdom on this topic in particular. I think it remains, at least where I grew up in the United States, a certain third rail of political life is talking in critical ways about some of the questions behind this. I think that is changing. There's a younger generation of American Jews who are much more openly critical about some of these questions. And you see that happening here in the UK uh, as well. I think it's actually matured uh, in many ways. But the reason there's so much um, emotion attached to this is because these are at, at their heart also ideologies of uh, one's own commitment and one's communal allegiance. And there's a tribal attitude or atmosphere when we talk about Israel and Palestine. And you see this in the Palestinian community, you see this in the Jewish community. And I've become very skeptical of tribalism, as it may be apparent by now. And I think that process of meeting people outside of the the particulars of my own community and engaging far beyond the comfort zone of where one finds themselves, you know, in, in Israel and in Palestine. I had spent this time, as I said, in the West Bank and then subsequent years found myself in Damascus and Beirut and Ramallah and Nablus. And when you start seeing things and opening yourself up to what this history or these politics look like from outside the tribe, as it were, you start asking different sorts of questions. And that as a historian is the great hope that people will start asking or thinking differently about these topics. You have got a book coming out at a moment where the word Zionism and the word anti-Semitism and how we talk about Israel and Judaism are much more in the public consciousness than they might have been two years ago, primarily because of the controversy in the Labour Party. And my colleague Paul Bickley has written really interestingly on this. Um, but those of us watching this debate unfold, I think sometimes struggle to know what to think, struggle to know what is going on with those competing voices. You, as someone from a Jewish heritage writing about this, I think probably have a particularly interesting perspective. How would you kind of sum up where this debate has got to in the UK? Well, I should also say you can hear it from my accent. I'm coming as an outsider, as an American to this question. So some of it is still very strange and 
um, and confusing to me. Um, I think part of it is about uh, sentiment and about how one speaks and understands these allegiances. Okay. And in the British context that I've become more familiar with, um, I know that on the left, the questions of anti-racism are at the heart of international uh, worldviews uh, of the left. And I think that Zionism has always been a problem for the left in the UK and in Europe because it, it went from what was seen as an emancipatory or radical idea in its early years uh, of settling uh, in Palestine and of socialist values that were at the heart of it with the recognition over time that that came at the cost of a local population. And so it's not only, or this, it wasn't only this uh, national movement or this movement of reclamation. It was also a movement that had colonial elements, a movement that had uh, uh, a displacement at its heart. And that end result of, 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 I think, that reckoning with the complex history of Zionism is also a focus then on the present and what does it mean in the context of an ongoing occupation and the suffering of Palestinians. Um, and so when we talk about it, we're not really just talking about these terms or these communal anxieties. We're also talking about a much broader history of this encounter between Arabs and Jews um, in, in Palestine itself. One thing I've tried to do in my own teaching as a way to think a bit beyond this, uh, and I teach uh, Jewish-Muslim relations uh, in the modern Middle East, is to take a step back and look at the relationship between Jewish and Arab communities before the onset of nationalism and ask very interesting questions about how and why they interact in more productive ways before some of the conflicts over land and labor take over in Palestine itself. And if you shift a little bit, uh, you, you find yourself looking at people who defy these easy categories of self and other. Okay, what does it mean to be an Arabic-speaking Jew who is writing in a non- or a-Zionist sort of way in the 1920s and 1930s? Or what does it mean to be a Hebrew-speaking um, uh, sort of resident of uh, historic Palestine and of uh, cities in, in, in Palestine who feels a growing commitment and attachment to Jewish national ideas. I think that maybe taking a step backwards is a really interesting way to rethink some of uh, the, the controversies we find ourselves in. I'm super aware that uh, there may be people listening to this podcast for whom this is difficult to listen to, you know, for, for whom this does like, feel like challenging. And that's right, because if you listen to this podcast for long enough, you will hear someone that you disagree with. And that's part of the design. But you had in the end of your book, a lovely acknowledgement where you're talking about someone um, who showed you the meaning of empathy with infinite patience and grace. And uh, that's really stayed with me. And I wondered if you were happy to say a little bit about what you've learned as you've navigated this, about what works when we're building bridges across difference, about when we're encountering people who we disagree with and perhaps people who disagree with us and feel very threatened or feel very frightened or feel very angry about some of the conclusions that we've drawn, wherever, whatever they are, what helps us stay in those relationships rather than running away or lashing out at each other? Part of it is the individual. I think when you meet people and you hear their stories or you see the realities that they've lived, it takes the abstract distance or the ideological commitment and it forces a confrontation with lived experience. And in that space where you imagine certain things, you project certain ideas, and then you see the result, you're forced to moderate the way you project a certain kind of ideological purity 
um, I remember taking a trip um, years ago to the south of Syria uh, to the, the Golan Heights. And this was an area I'd only seen uh, as a young uh, student from the Israeli side. And I remember traveling to uh, this part of Syria and the landscape changes. It's much greener. It's much, uh, it, it's much more lush. And everybody's on, on this van and very excited about being in the Golan and talking about its, uh, its importance to Syrian identity. And I had never understood why this particular space was so significant, right? I'd only seen it from the vantage point of the Israeli side of the border and standing there on the Syrian side of the Golan and looking in rather than looking out was really transformative for me. And I think that has stayed with me as a way to think about this gap between the projection of a certain reality and what that lived experience looks like from another angle. Seth, thank you so much for coming to talk to me today. My pleasure. It was wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for listening to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. Our producer is Hussein Kazvani, and it is a project of the think tank Theos. If you're enjoying the series and you think it's important that we have big questions about difference, we'd love to enlist your help to spread the word. Please think about posting a review or rating us on iTunes or any other of your favourite podcast providers. Share on social media and tell your friends. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos or come to one of our central London events, you can connect via our website at theosthinktank.co.uk.